Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. You know, I'm excited to be with you all tonight uh, for a couple of reasons. Tonight, uh, we come to the end, both literally and prophetically. And I say... uh, the end prophetically because this evening we're looking at the last prophetic uh, vision that was given by that 6th century futurist by the name of Daniel. And this last vision will take us to the end of human history as we know it. But then it will go on and begin to crack open ever so delicately the history that will follow the end of human history as we know it. But it is his last vision. And with that last vision comes the end, literally, for this series that I have been doing called Back to the Future. And so tonight is the last message in that series. Christians have often been labeled fatalist because of their view of the future. Uh, Many people charge that Christians aren't willing to roll up their sleeves and get to work in the causes, the social causes of humanity because Christians think that It's really not worth it because the world is not going to get better and better. The fact is the world is going to come to some obscene, bloody end. So what's the use? Fact is, in the New York Times recently, there was a front page article that charged Christians with being annihilationist because of their prophetic beliefs. In fact, it went on to say that Christians were in some ways dangerous to society because of that. My, how far we've come. Christians, dangerous to society. The United States of America, founded by Christians, built by Christians. The law system having its very roots in Judeo-Christian traditions. And now, in the year 1990, Christians are seen as dangerous to society. If you've been reading the Little Rock newspaper, you've heard that word mentioned several times about Christians in our city. You know, there was another time that Christians were labeled dangerous because of their beliefs. It was in the first century by the Caesars. And that that calling card of saying that Christians were dangerous was the first step to ultimately executing and persecuting those Christians. In Germany, Jews were called dangerous in 1939. And yet here today in 1990, we find on the front end of our society in 1990, we, the church, being called dangerous as well. You know, I think it's important that we stop at this point and let us be very careful in what we say about the future. Yes, we Christians believe that the Bible predicts a coming world conflict of terrible proportions. But is that so out of step with human history? All of human history has been woven with the consistent thread of war. It's part and parcel of the nature of man, war is. And the fact that we think of war as something future to us shouldn't be a surprise to us unless something happens, something very cataclysmic happens in the heart of man. And so saying that war is coming It's not to be considered unusual, but yes, we do believe that as Christians in the schematic of prophecy. But no, we do not believe that war will end human history. If prophecy does anything to me personally, and I hope to you personally, it should make us not fatalist, but optimist. People who want to roll up their sleeves and get involved even more so in the good of humanity because we think that human beings are the only thing that will last forever. That's what prophecy should lead us to. It should make us want to work more, not less. For the focus of prophecy is not on war, but on a coming kingdom that stands at the far far horizon of humanity. A kingdom in which righteousness will reign. A kingdom that will be eternal, like we sung about just a few moments ago. A kingdom that will have no room for war in it. A kingdom in which people who lived honorably in this life, who didn't give themselves over to base passions and sensuality, 
People who live to serve others rather than to be served will themselves be honored in this particular kingdom. It will be a kingdom of healing, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of grace, and a kingdom of virtue. Does your heart here this evening long for that kind of kingdom? Boy, mine does. And the whole prophetic scheme has a direct arrow pointing to a coming kingdom in which those kind of ideals will become the real. Now that makes me an optimist here this evening as we talk about prophecy. You know, this evening, Daniel's final prophetic vision, the one that he will give us in chapters 10, 11, and 12, will give us some future, uh, future insights or futuristic insights into how this kingdom, this coming kingdom, will actually materialize. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 10. And as you're doing so, I want you to know that this vision that we're going to see first starts by introducing us to a figure that has been unknown to us as we've moved through the book of Daniel. And yet suddenly Daniel faces this figure as the vision is about to unfold to him. Look in verse 4 of Daniel chapter 10. It says, And on the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. And his body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. And while the men who were with me did not see the vision, nevertheless a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone, and I saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me, for my natural color turned to a deathly parlor, and I retained no strength. As this vision is about to unfold, Daniel is introduced to this gigantic figure that is almost like a transparent jewel. And he stands before Daniel, and Daniel feels his presence, although this figure will not say much to Daniel at all throughout the entire vision. Later on in chapter 10, an angel comes to Daniel and begins to reveal the information about the time of the end in chapters 10, 11, and 12. And yet, here this incredible jeweled figure stands before Daniel radiating this awesome presence to him. The question we want to ask is, well, who is this person? Well, the book of Daniel does not tell us. However, if we were to turn through the pages of Scripture and go through the centuries and go 700 years forward to the time in which we're at the end of the apostolic age and there is only one apostle yet living, the apostle John, And John is on the Isle of Patmos and he's imprisoned. And in that prison cell, he receives a revelation of Jesus Christ who begins to unfold that vision to John that John later calls the revelation. And interestingly enough, in uh, Revelation chapter 1, this same figure stands before John himself. Except in this particular vision, the figure speaks and tells John who he is with these words. He says, John, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, but now I am alive forever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Well, I don't think that you have any mistaken impression at this point about who is speaking here, do you? Certainly it is the person of Jesus Christ And so now we can go back 600 years and here standing before Daniel in his pre-incarnate glorified state is the Lord Jesus himself. And his incredible powerful presence causes Daniel to become weak. It is so magnificent in its glory. You know, this pronouncement of Jesus here would be once again introduced into human history 600 years later when an angel, I mean when a star would appear over Bethlehem and introduce Jesus into human history. But here he is introduced not in human form, but in his glorified form before the apostle John. I mean the uh, prophet Daniel. Now the question we have to ask is, why? Why in this book of Daniel does suddenly Jesus appear 
in his glorified state and really not say anything. Fact is, he will only speak just a few words here and then later on at the very end in chapter 12. But why is his presence felt throughout these three chapters? Well, I think we're invited to ask that question and speculation can only answer it, but here's what I would think in that regard. I believe that the reason uh, Jesus appears here in the midst of these both disturbing and very terrifying visions is that he is declaring that human history is not moving to some sad and bloody and inglorious end. But as a matter of fact, human history is moving towards a great and supernatural and glorious person. And that person is Jesus Christ himself. So here in his pre-existent state, Daniel, uh, Jesus stands before Daniel as the goal of human existence. And now with that said, let's go into the vision itself and look at this final vision. We won't be able to look at it all. We'll only look at selected parts. So why don't you turn to Daniel chapter 11 and let's pick it up in verse 36. Now you remember two weeks ago we talked about this great sinister figure that we came to know as Antichrist. And here as we pick up in Daniel chapter 11, we're going to once again begin to to see this particular sinister figure. And we're going to talk about him in the next few moments. But let's read about him in verse 36. He's called a king in verse 36. It says, Then the king, or Antichrist, will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation, or another word is tribulation, until the tribulation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. Do you remember in our discussion about Antichrist that he was an interesting personality, one of the two great personalities who would stand at the end of the age? He would be different from this great world ruler that we talked about in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 8, we learned that this Antichrist was a magnetic religious figure. And the purpose of his arrival on the scene at the end of the age is that he comes and through his shrewdness and his cunning, he leads the state of Israel, which is seeking protection and its self-autonomy, into a covenant, a peace accord, a, a covenant arrangement with this great world ruler who is now threatening the entire world scene. And so this religious figure comes on the scene and he is the one who joins the hands between this great world ruler and the state of Israel. Now what Israel doesn't know is that is it signing this peace accord thinking that as a people it's going to remain its own autonomous self and be able to worship its own God and keep its own particular heritages and traditions like Jewish people have tried to preserve all throughout human history. What they don't know is as they're signing that peace accord in reality what they're signing is their own death certificate. And in time this Antichrist will not speak for the God of Israel and for the people of Israel, though that's what they were led to believe. But instead, through his shrewdness, he will begin to speak out against Israel as this great world ruler begins to seek self-deification. Do you remember that as we talked about it? And in the middle of that covenant, he severs it and creates all kinds of desecrations in Israel and in particular to the religious aspect of Israel and he then begins to speak, as it says in verse 36, monstrous things against God, Israel's God, which is shocking to them. And then a great persecution and tribulation is unleashed against Israel, greater than any that has ever gone before. The fact is, Zechariah chapter 12, the prophet Zechariah tells us, and in the midst of this tribulation and persecution that is pointed towards Israel in specific, all the other nations of the world are drawn into this conflict. And if you'll notice, it goes on to say, and it says, and he, that is Antichrist, will prosper. The word can also mean triumph until this tribulation is finished. Now, in the verses that follow, we get a second look at Antichrist. We go a little more up close, and we get some added descriptives to his resume. Look there at verse 37. It says, and he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. 
Now, I hope that some of you have a Bible that has a marginal reading that says, He will show no regard for the God of His fathers. If you remember, we're in the Jewish section of this prophetic book. And that is a Jewish phrase, God of His fathers. It's used in another place, a similar phrase. It's used in another place in the book of Daniel. In fact, it's used of Daniel himself as he prays to God back in Daniel chapter 2. Why don't you hold your place there and turn back just for a moment to Daniel chapter 2 and let's read that. Daniel is in the midst of a prayer in Daniel chapter 2 verse 23, but in the midst of that prayer he utters these words. Read them with me. Verse 23. He says, To thee, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. Now Daniel is clearly speaking to his God, our God. But he uses the phrase, God of my fathers. And here in Daniel chapter 11, verse 37, it says that this Antichrist will show no regard for the God of his fathers. Now, why am I making that connection? Because I think that connection hints at the fact that Antichrist will be of Jewish origin. He will be a Jew. And what better person to link hands between a world ruler and a nation-state that is primarily a religious state than a person who is of that race himself. And here he will come, as we learned about, this one of great cunning. He also comes, one who can do these great wonders and miracles which Jews are inclined to be impressed with, as we learned in the Scripture in Revelation 13. And he will come and he will offer up all kinds of reasons that make perfectly good sense to Israel as to why they should embrace and join into the hands of this great world empire. And yet as they do so, they do so through their own demise. Then there's another statement made about this Antichrist in verse 37. It says, not only will he show no regard for the God of his fathers, but he will show no regard for the desire of women. What does that mean? There are some who have suggested maybe he was celibate or maybe he was gay in his uh, orientation. I think, once again, though, this is a peculiar Jewish phrase known to a lot of, of uh, Jews as a, a specific kind of desire. It takes us back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve were first cursed by the Satan after their fall. If you'll remember, when Eve was cursed, she was also given a promise, and that promise was this that through your seed, Eve, which would come out of your body, would come one who will ultimately overcome evil and crush Satan. And in many parts of the Jewish community, women had a hope, a desire, that through them would come this Jewish Savior, who was later known as the Messiah. Now, we believe there was a woman who was favored in that way, Mary. But the Jews today do not believe that. And so they still look forward to who is going to be the one who will give birth to the Messiah. It's the desire of every woman. And yet here in verse 37, it says that this particular Antichrist will not only show no regard for the God of his fathers, but he will also show no regard for the desire of the race and in particular women, that have this Messiah that the state of Israel so longs for. He will not honor either one, but he will wipe them away in favor of another God. And who is that other God? Well, he's mentioned in verse 38. It says, but instead, he will honor a God of fortresses, a God of military power, God of military might. And as we learned in Daniel chapter 7, that particular God will be this Caesar who is to come, who is still yet future to us, that one who will ultimately rise and dominate that European confederation of nations. He will take over those, and he will become the new age tyrant of future history, and ultimately he will require the whole world to worship him as he deifies himself. Of course, the nation of Israel will resist that, but the person who will enforce it will be this person called Antichrist. Notice what it goes on to say in verse 38 or 39. It says, and he will take action against the strongest of fortresses. In other words, as Israel resists, he will take action against them with the help of this world ruler here called the foreign God. And he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him. 
Do you remember in Revelation 13, it told us that when the false prophet, the Antichrist, comes and tells people they must worship the beast, there'll be some who will resist. And those who resist, who don't take the number of his name, those will be denied food. They will be persecuted. Some will be arrested, even killed. But those who say, yes, we will follow the beast, as it says here in verse 39, he will give great honor to them. He will put them in places of power, positions of power. As it says in the next verse, he will cause them to rule over the many. And then finally it says, and he will parcel out land for a price. Now that's an interesting phrase, parcel out land for a price. Perhaps that is a veiled reference to how all the problems that we see now taking place in the Middle East over whose land is whose. Maybe he will be the one enforced by the power of this world ruler. He'll be the one who will settle who gets what land in that Middle Eastern community. But it will come at a price. And the price won't be money. The price will be who will give their allegiance and their worship to this world ruler. Now, there are some of the descriptives, the additional descriptives to this Antichrist. Now, as prophecy often does, you have, a, you have a particular scene of prophecy, and then almost in the next verse, the scene shifts to a different scene. And that's exactly what will happen in the rest of this passage and on into chapter 12. And that's what happens as we move into verse 40. We move into a different scene. Notice it says, suddenly it says, at the end of time, the king of the south will collide with him and the king of the north will storm against this antichrist with chariots and horsemen and with many ships and he will enter countries and overflow them and pass through. All of a sudden we see a war taking place. Now if you remember this antichrist's job was to link Israel with this world ruler and to establish a world dominating empire that had peace and stability. And in that final week of Daniel, those last seven years, we learned in the first half of those seven years there would be peace. But now when we come to verse 40, that peace begins to unravel. We're not told how it unravels at this point. We're not told what are the events that spark the unraveling. Probably something that Israel herself does. But somehow, these political alliances at this point in time that have been so shrewdly concocted by the Antichrist and the world ruler, they begin to break down. And in a moment of panic, it says, the king of the south suddenly invades and collides with this Antichrist. We learn that the king of the south, remember, was Egypt. The king of the north, this area of Syria, it also gets involved. And then if you'll notice, many countries suddenly rush into that Middle Eastern area and get involved in this conflict. Notice it goes on and says in verse 41, it says that he will also enter the beautiful land, that is Israel, and many countries will fall. And so what we're seeing is even more countries get involved, and yet where is the focus now of this conflict? It's the beautiful land. It's Israel herself. She becomes the battlefield. Now let me stop for a moment and ask you a question. Does this sound far-fetched? <laughs> I mean, here we are reading a prophet who wrote 2,600 years ago. And nations will come and go over those 2,600 years. They will come into existence and out of existence and back into existence. But 2,600 years ago, Prophet Daniel is telling us about these events that will bring about a final world conflict that we know of in the book of Revelation as Armageddon. And now in 1990, we stand here tonight with armies all over the world pouring in to the Middle East. A world alliance joining together. Now I'm not saying that this is referring to that. I am only saying how easy it is now for us to see how these events can take place. Missiles poised in Iraq pointed towards Israel. And notice it says, many ships in verse 40. And what have we been hearing every night? About all the embargoes and the many ships from all over the world who are there placed strategically in the Persian Gulf. And Egypt is sending her troops. And Syria is sending her troops. Gosh, it seems like we're almost reading at this point today's newspaper, doesn't it? Isn't this an amazing book? 
Well, let's go on because I don't know how the desert shield uh, operation is going to turn out, but I do know how Armageddon is going to turn out because it tells us. So let's go on. Verse 42. It says, Then this Antichrist, with the help of this world ruler who is now obviously involved, will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. Egypt will be destroyed. And it says in verse 30, 43, But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt. And the Libyans and the Ethiopians will follow at his heels. Well, those Libyans, they're never on the right side, are they? <laughs> Then look at verse 44. It says, But rumors from the east and the north will disturb him. <clears throat> in this great confederation that's now involved in this operation, evidently there's some other countries that are not yet involved. Countries to the east and the north. And when he hears of these rumblings of these countries, he becomes disturbed because of the consequences that might be involved. Now geographically, the countries that are east of Israel are Iraq and Iran and India and China. The countries that are north are Syria and Russia, Turkey and even Germany. Germany, by the way, is a country that was not part of the Roman Empire. Now, those might not be the exact way those countries fall out when these events take place, but I just want you to get an idea of the geographical territories that we're talking about when it says he hears rumors from the east and the north. And he becomes disturbed because of their involvement in this conflict. And notice it goes on to say that he then goes forth with great wrath. He pulls all his muscle into it and many are destroyed. And he annihilates, it says, many. And he will pitch his tent, the tent of his royal pavilion, between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain, the plain of Armageddon. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Boy, this is an incredible scene. This final world conflict. But it is not the end of human history. Now the scene changes with the camera. And when we start chapter 12, we move not to Antichrist and the battle of Armageddon, but we move to a desperate people, the nation of Israel, who is being besieged in this conflict. Stay in Daniel 12, and just turn forward a few pages in your Old Testament. If you're not careful, you'll run by him, but you'll come upon Zechariah. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 12. Now, Zechariah will tell us what takes place. Look at verse 8. It says, In that day, and the day he's referring to is this great day of tribulation, where Israel has lost her hope, where she's wailing and mourning, and feeling extinction is nigh. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, suddenly will regain new strength. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him, that is Jesus, as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Now look down in chapter 13, verse 1. Because see, can you picture it? Here they are, besieged on every side, their numbers dwindling as death and destruction takes place all around them. They think they have no hope, and suddenly the sky opens up, and it's the saints of God, and all these wonders that occur in those last few moments. And they get to gaze upon Him whom they have pierced in a previous millennium. And they begin to mourn wail. They begin to see that all this time they have put their face against God, not with God. And chapter 13, verse 1 says, In that moment and in that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for their sin and their impurity. And look, look down at verse 8 of that same chapter. 
And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. Two-thirds of the nation will die. But the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. And after all this persecution, as I come and they reach up to embrace me, then they will call on my name and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people. And they will say, and you are our Lord. Is that not exciting? May I say, by just a way of application at this point, that if you're here tonight, and I'm sure there's at least one, if you're here tonight mourning over your life and the catastrophes, however they feel that's befallen you, and you feel like you're besieged on every side and there is no hope, I want you to know there is. There really is. If Scripture teaches anything, it teaches this one singular truth over and over and over again, and it's this. The end is not the end when one turns to God. For Israel, if you can imagine, it seems so much like the end. And right before the heavens open, no one would have thought at that moment that there was any hope. But you know, the end is not the end when one turns to God. The thief on the cross found that out, spent his whole life on worthless things and hung there next to Jesus and he realized the end was about to come. But in just a few short statements of interchange with the Savior of the world, he discovered that the end was not the end when one turns to God. And I want you to know whatever condition you're in tonight, the end is not the end for you. But you have to turn your heart and give your heart to God. You have to mourn over your sin. You have to be willing to repent of it and to embrace His way and His will for your life. But if you do, He will provide a way of escape, just as He does in this final hour with the nation of Israel. Well, let's turn now to verse 3, because now the scene changes a fourth time. Now we are no longer in the tribulation. In fact, you can look at the bottom of your outline because I've diagrammed these events in picture form so you can make more sense of them. But I want you to know in verse 3, we are now at the beginning part of the millennium. That thousand-year reign of Christ that the Apostle John tells us about in Revelation chapter 20. And it gives us a little keyhole glimpse into that millennium. It doesn't tell us a lot, but it allows us just to peer in just a little bit and get a little insight into what that's going to be like. And here's what he tells us. He says, And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever. Now what is he saying here at this point? He is saying that there are certain people who will stand out in the millennial kingdom. After this great tribulation, after the world has gone through all these things, after God has resurrected the saints, both Old and New Testament, in the great resurrection and rapture of Jesus Christ's second coming, at that point in time, they will enter the millennial kingdom and there will be certain personalities that will stand out as great, as special. Now, if I were to ask you, who do you think is great in history? I bet all kinds of particular standouts will come to mind, usually political figures like an Alexander the Great, or a Caesar, or a Cleopatra, a Nero, a Abraham Lincoln, a Winston Churchill, somebody like that. But I want you to know that the greats of history are not necessarily the greats of eternity. Verse 3 tells us who the greats of eternity are. It doesn't tell us all who are great, but it does give us two particular types of people who will be considered great in the kingdom that Christ sets up on earth. The first is, if you'll notice, those who have insight, or rather, those who give insight. It's those people who help others to understand about the meaning of life and what's important in life and what's valuable and what should be the priorities as opposed to what shouldn't be the priorities. 
Tony Campolo wrote a book, Who Switched the Price Tags? And in the midst of that book, he tells a story of how he interviewed people who were a group of people who were 95 years old or more. And he asked them for some insight about life that the younger generation could kind of benefit from. And he asked him this question. He said, if you had life to live over again, what would you change? What would you do differently? And these are the three responses that that group of people gave. They said, first, we would take more time to reflect. Just reflect on things. Secondly, we would risk more if we had our lives to live over again. But I was particularly caught by the third. The third is we would invest ourselves more in the things that would be would go on after we were gone. What are the things that will continue to go on after you're gone? You know, when you help another person discover the meaning of life, when you help another person understand what's valuable about life, what is important as opposed to unimportant, you invest yourself in the things that will live on after you. But those things, I want you to know, won't be forgotten because there's going to come a day when you're raised out of the ground and you'll get to experience the joy and the fruit of that labor that you've labored with here on earth. Most people may not see what you've done, how hard you've worked to help other people have that kind of insight, but I want you to know, God sees it and God hadn't forgotten it. Then there's a second group of people there. If you'll notice, it says, those who lead the many to righteousness. That is, those who help people find Christ. Those who help people walk in His ways, master His wisdom, profess His truths in their lifestyles. These are going to be the great people of eternity. Do you know who they are? Right now, do you know who they are? Probably not. But when Christ's kingdom comes, Jesus said He'll reverse the value system. Remember, Jesus said, in my kingdom, the first will be last. And the last will be first. It'll be a different kind of kingdom. And those names that sound so ordinary in this life will sound great in my kingdom. Like Uncle Willie. <laughs> Uncle Willie may not sound like much now, but Uncle Willie may sound really special in the millennial kingdom. Or Joe. Or Pete. Or Betty, or, or that learning center teacher, uh, Susan, that, that you know, I, I kind of remember a long time ago, but, but I just remember how much she helped me. Or, or, or that parent that I can't even remember his name now, but when we were at youth camp and I was really going through that struggle, sat me down and really helped me understand the way to get it done right. Or how about the word mom or dad? See, in the kingdom, those words are going to ring with the sound of greatness in the same way a name like Alexander the Great sounds to us now. Those will be the greats in his kingdom. It'll be a whole different value system. Well, at this point, the vision concludes in Daniel at uh, verse 3. And it says, But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book. I don't think Daniel's ready at this point for the book to be sealed up, closed. But as this book is closed, there are a few kind of tidbits that fall out right here at the end. I'm sure Daniel is still going, gosh, I'd like to have more insight here and there. And there are a few final tidbits that kind of fall to the ground, even as these books are being closed that, are being, that would be important for us to look at. Look at verse 4. One of those tidbits stand out right in verse 4. It says, Seal up the books until the, the book until the time of the end. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Uh, there are different ways of looking at that, but here's the way I'd like to read it if I could just help interpret that for you. Look at the verse again. It says, seal up the book until the time of the end. And then I would like to just insert one word, when. When many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. I think in just kind of an offhanded way, Daniel is hinting to us what will be some of the chief characteristics of the end of the age. First characteristic is many will go back and forth. In other words, people will be mobile. You know, 
for thousands of years, people traveled exactly the same way until the invention of the steam engine. And then mobility began to pick up. Now mobility is at a fever pace, isn't it? Fact is, this year, every day, this year, three million people get on a plane every day and fly from one place on the planet to another place on the planet. In total, over a billion people will fly just this year. In the year 2000, however, they predict it'll be over two billion people. People just going back and forth, to and fro across our planet. And we feel that increased mobility in our own lives, don't we? You know, a family moves in America every five years. We are a mobile society. But we're also a knowledge-based society. It says here that knowledge will increase. I remember in 1980, I was reading a, a book that was talking about a great mega shift that was coming worldwide. And that mega shift was this, that we were moving from being an industrial society to an informational society. I remember talking to my wife because I couldn't quite get an emotional feel on what an informational society would be like. But I don't have that problem anymore, do you? I mean, all I have to do is look in my mailbox and I'm overwhelmed with the amount of information that's going out all the time. We are an information-based society and we will continue to grow even greater in that regard. Futurist Roger Selbert makes this startling statement. He says, and I quote, Although we have an incredible amount of information available already, what we have now is less than 3% of what we will have in the year 2010. Wow. And so what Daniel hits to us at is that at the end of the age, life will be like this snowball going downhill. It'll be getting bigger and bigger with more and more mass of information. It will be going faster and faster and it will also be getting more and more dangerous as well. Then there's a second tidbit in verses 5 and 6. It says, Then I, Daniel, looked and beheld two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen, here again, this is the second time of these three chapters that Jesus is introduced. This man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, they ask him this question, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? And I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised first his right hand and then his left hand towards heaven. And he swore by him, that is God who lives forever, that it would be for a time, times and a half time. And as soon as they finished shattering the power, the pride of the holy people, all these events will be completed. In our study of Daniel, we learned that a time, times, and a half time on a Jewish calendar is three and a half years or 1,260 days. And here Daniel, knowing all these events are coming, Jesus Christ himself swears to God with both hands held high that though it might look like it will end the existence of Israel, God swears that it won't go on past three and a half years. And you can count on it. Well, that's important to understand because some other days are given in these following verses. Because all of the book of Daniel are just leading up to the time of the end. They don't venture much into this millennial kingdom. It just brings us up to the very end. And I'm sure Daniel's saying, well, if it's going to end after 1,260 days, then what? What's going to be the events that are going to occur after that? Verse 8 says, as he heard this, he asked that question. He said, my Lord, what will be the outcome? What's going to follow these events? And Jesus says, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and they're sealed up until the end of time. And we kind of want to go, gosh, well, I guess he's not going to say anything. But even at this point, a few additional tidbits fall out that we can grab onto. Look there at verse 10. He says, many will be purged, purified, and refined. Remember I talked about the church going through the tribulation, Israel going through the tribulation, and we asked the question, why? Why would God allow pull his hand back and allow people to go through such a heinous time. The purpose is to purge them and to purify them and to refine them. To let people find out what they really believe and to stand up for who and what they really believe and to experience the power of that. 
to demonstrate faithfulness when things aren't comfortable anymore. But then he goes on and says, but the wicked, they won't understand these last times. They will act wickedly and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight, they will understand. And that's you. Then a second tidbit is given in verse 11. He says, And from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now remember we said in our study of Daniel that at the middle of that week there would be this great desecration of the temple when Antichrist would come and place the statue of the beast there and say, you've got to worship the beast. And the temple would be desecrated. And it would go on for three and a half years, 1,260 days. But here he says, 1,290 days from the time that that statue set up to the time it's taken down. What are the additional 30 days? Well, we can only guess to a certain extent, but what I think is actually going to take place in those 30 days is that Jesus Christ has come. He's come with His saints in the clouds. He's come and destroyed the armies that, have, that were about to extinguish the life of Israel. And then in that battle that ensues, there's a great bloodbath. And then there takes a time where there's the cleansing of the nation of Israel and the temple in particular. And finally, the temple is cleansed. And this great image that had defied and desecrated the temple is removed at the end of these additional 30 days. And I believe that Jesus Christ will come and He will sit on the throne in the Holy of Holies. That will be His throne room to govern the nations. Have you ever been to the Lincoln Memorial at night? Ever stood out on the Capitol grounds of our great nation and peered in with the shadows falling across Lincoln's face as he sits on that great marble seat and had those chill bumps as you looked at this person who kind of exemplified a lot of virtues that every man and woman would love to be like? That's kind of how I envision in just a small part Jesus Christ sitting on His throne in Jerusalem overlooking the world and being its judge. <clears throat> and I think that He will do so at the end of this cleansing time in these additional 30 days. But then notice in verse 12, it, uh, it adds even some more days. It says, How blessed is He who keeps uh, waiting and obtains to 1,335 days. Well, that's 45 days more than 1,290. What takes place in those 45 days? Well, you have to bring several Scriptures together, but here's what I think takes place. And again, I'm speculating, but I, I think in those 45 days, once Jesus has been enthroned, <clears throat> that we go through 45 days in which all the saints now, Old and New Testament, resurrected as well as living, are there. And in that time, there is this tremendous time of celebration and affirmation and commendation and award given to the people of God who have lived well and virtuously and faithfully in this life. And once those awards and those responsibilities have been distributed over that 45-day period, then the millennial kingdom is underway. Paul alludes to that very fact. At the very end of his life, I mean, if you can imagine this great apostle had given his whole life, and there he is about to be executed in, in, in the Roman Empire in Rome, he makes this statement <clears throat> all by himself. <clears throat> he says, I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the course. I have kept the faith, and now in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to all who loved His appearing. Well, Daniel gets to have that opportunity because in verse 13 it says, Daniel, go your way to the end. In other words, Daniel, you're going to die. You don't have a land. You're just a captive in a foreign land. You're going to die and you're going to enter your rest. But Daniel, here's what I want you to know though you haven't received any of the promises of Abraham, even though you're a child of Abraham. You don't have a king. You don't even have a country, much less a temple. You've got nothing, and yet you've served me. I want you to know that in the day of a resurrection, you, you'll be there. Notice it says, you'll rise again, 
for your allotted portion. Just like so many saints, Daniel is going to possess what he couldn't possess in this life except by faith. He's going to possess this land and these people. And he is going himself to be commended. And I would be willing to bet that the name of Daniel will sound like Alexander the Great in the kingdom. People will wink at each other when they think of Daniel. They'll go, yes, that's the guy. Well, what about you? You know, in verse 3, it talks about who are going to be the greats. Our world has laid down a whole smorgasbord of ways that you can be significant. And people are feeding off those trays every day of your life, and yet they're not finding significance, are they? And yet what God has given to us in these prophetic schemes is He's allowed us to clear all those kind of distractions away and know what really counts so that we can be a star in the millennial kingdom. You want to be significant? If you say no, you're not telling me the truth. Every person here wants to be significant. But if you want to be significant, these prophetic statements are helping you get a handle on how you can be significant. Remember the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth, just like it is in heaven. You want to be significant? Then do the will of God. Because in the millennial kingdom, Christians won't be called dangerous. They'll be called stars. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for these incredible visions. Now we would pray that You would encourage us in our lifestyle, knowing that what has been said is faithful and true. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.